HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you a sensational episode where each story hones in on one of the four senses that accompanies taste. Many of the smells that we uh, encounter in everyday life actually exist out there in the cosmos. Food carries all these culturally specific meanings. The fact that, you know, when you see an apple, it's not just an apple, right? I was mostly interested in thinking about what knobs ASMR was pulling on, maybe, or how we could explain it from a psychological or emotional or evolutionary standpoint. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Zev Rovine. We'll talk to Zev about the role of an importer, what is natural wine, and the working contract. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. You can't talk about natural wine in the U.S. without Zev Rovine being in the conversation. Waiter turned wine distributor, Zev started importing wines back in 2008 from small estates that are towar-driven, practicing low intervention in organics. He is the proprietor of Zev Rovine Selections, importing wine from over a dozen countries and 140-plus wineries. In light of the pandemic and racial inequality, the industry continues to change. Zev has proposed a working contract or code of conduct to address sexism, racism, labor rights, and the stewardship of land in the wine business. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Zev. Thanks for having me. Um, due to COVID-19, because you're in Brooklyn and our studios are in Brooklyn, it would have been really nice to sit face to face. But because of the virus, we're doing a remote broadcast via Zencaster. Um, I know your offices are in Brooklyn. Where are you right now? Um, you know, I was working. We just moved our offices from one part of Bushwick to another. 
Um, but it was a little hectic in there, so uh, I went home to uh, okay. Clinton Hill, where I live, in a, a you know quiet spot. Good, good for you. Um, I had Patrick Capiello on a couple of weeks ago, and he literally did the uh, interview from like the crushing wine pad outdoor at Pax Mallee. <laughs> you know, with that beep beep of backing up trucks and all that it was kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. um, I want people to just you know, have a sense of who you are and, you know, how you got to where you are. So just give me a brief background on your journey in life and wine um, that got you, you know, to your own business, Zevro Vine Selections and Influential Natural Wine um, Importer. Give me the quick story. All right. Well, uh, first, thanks for the... uh Thanks for the nice introduction. Okay, um, you're you welcome. Know, I, don't need, I, I wouldn't <laughs> say some of those things about myself, but I appreciate you saying them. They're all um, true, that Zev. I don't under overstate. It's all, all fact. Right, well, well, I appreciate it. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think longevity leads to that a little bit. You know, we've been doing it for, uh, you know, 12 plus years now. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, over that time, obviously, natural wine has sort of become a thing. Um, I, I guess we're going to backtrack if I'm going to tell you. like, Yeah, the, tell me how you got there, because once we get there, that we're going to go crazy on all that other stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, so I moved to New York uh, when I was 20 years old. I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, I started working in restaurants. You know, I, I moved to New York basically to play in a band and you know, follow like a, a, a young dream. Um, right. <clears throat> and like a lot of people, I worked in restaurants and, um, you know, there's a couple fun, kind of like funny little stories. Uh, I, I had like wine in my upbringing. My stepfather always drank wine um, and I always had a little glass of dinner and, you know, in school growing up. So there was, there was sort of wine around me, but it wasn't like I came from like a wine family in any way. Um, but I was working at this one restaurant, Butter, and there was this like contest where the the person, the waiter that sold the most glasses of, uh, I think it was Estancia Meritage, um, would. <laughs> Not terrible. Hey, you know, this is like 2002, so yeah. um, you know, Meritage was like this new exciting idea, and like I rehearsed the whole spiel. Um, you know, and I sold the shit out of it and it was like over the course of a month and I think it was a $17 glass pour, which for 2002 was pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so you really had to like navigate how to, how to, you know, communicate that in like a, a fair way and, um, you know, and still make the sale and everything. And so I, I did that and I won the contest and the, and the prize for the, for winning the contest was, the. Uh, free entry to the, the ASA, the American Sommelier Association, um, like viticulture and vinification course. Um, and so I took the course and I got really into wine, you know, I started, you know, I was getting into wine through working, um, you know, at various restaurants in New York. And um, this is like a, a great opportunity to, uh, to, you know, deepen my knowledge. Um, and you know, I, I got that like basic foundation of wine knowledge there. Um, and then, you know, so that wait, kind so, of like guided the rest of my, my, my service career. So winning, winning that course, um, from your great salesmanship is really what sort of solidified it and pointed you out in that direction of wine. It's fair to say. I mean, look, it at least gave me like a marketable skill right. for future jobs. 
you know, right. that like I had this knowledge and that like I really, you know, have studied wine a lot and that I can be like a quality wine service person and, you know, potentially some way at your restaurant or assistant some way or something like that. So, so you know, it made you more special than just a waiter, which, you know, at the right. time it was very hard to get uh, really good service jobs. I mean, it, it obviously it's even harder right now. Mm. Um, but, you know, it was a way to to develop my my interest of possible employers basically. so there's your interest in wine where's the transition from you know restaurants into the you know other side of the business which is importing distributing you know wholesaling how does that come about so there's a there's a stop for about three years in uh in utah um and i basically took over this little coffee shop that was inside of a bookstore and this was, uh, I don't know, like 2004, 2007. And, um, you know, it was kind of before Amazon was destroying bookstores, sort of Borders and Barnes and Noble were destroying bookstores. Um, and the bookstore was struggling a little bit. And, you know, Park City, Utah is a, a weird seasonal place. And so we basically um, got a wine permit for the, for the coffee shop and put in a cheese counter and basically did like charcuterie and cheese and like a little bit more and had a wine selection. And um, we would do like these wine events where we would pick a region and I would like guide a group through tasting um, every Friday. And that was sort of just to like get business going and it became super popular. And so for three years I gave like an hour and a half to two hour like, you know, tasting seminar and we would do, you know, we did like a 24 week series on France. And so basically I would like, you know, read and study up to be able to give the course. Um, and I did every Friday for three years. And so I ended up learning a lot, um, over that time, sort of just strengthening like my base of knowledge. Um, and then, uh, um, well, in Utah, I mean, were you around Salt Lake city? You weren't in the sticks, were you? No, it was Park City. So if you know Park Utah, it's where, okay. the, it's yeah. where the Sundance Film Festival is. And it's like a kind yeah, of like a liberal cool little bubble up, you know, in like the Jetsons right. above Salt Lake City, above the smog, um, you know, right. in a really great ski town. So, it was, you know, it was a fun place to spend a few years. Um, if you guys are listening to this or you know Evan Lewandowski, his wines, um, right. he worked for me at the wine bar back in the day. Um, that's kind of how he got his intro to wine. Um, and then went on to, you know, to Ruth go to school for it, Ruth Lewandowski, right? Yeah. To go to school for it and open his own winery. And, you know, we've been selling his wines, of course, since his first bottle. Um, and he's, you know, one of my dearest, oldest friends, but that comes from, uh, that relationship comes from that period. All right. So you're, you're in a coffee shop, turn wine bar, turn Friday tastings. We're still not up to how you became a, uh. Um, a wine uh, importer. Yeah, so in the end, the, the business didn't survive. Um, you know, we had a really big space and the bookstore just wasn't able to create the revenue that was necessary. And so, you know, we went out of, biz we went out of business and um, I was kind of trying to figure out different things that I was going to do. And I was sort of raising money for a restaurant in Park City, but I really wanted to move back to New York. And... Um, so I kind of came up with this idea of doing a wine import company. 
Um, I had, you know, consulted for some other wine import companies and I kind of like had a little bit of an idea of what to do, but very, not a very strong idea. And so, um, I tried to raise money for this restaurant. I had raised a bunch of it. And when I told everybody that I didn't want to do the restaurant anymore and that I wanted to start a wine import company and move back to New York city, um, pretty much everybody dropped out. Uh, with the exception of four couples who were regulars at my Friday tasting, and they each gave me a, a really little bit of money to be able to go and start the concept. And so that's what I did. And so I, I took the money and I started the business and I, I, I you know, got a little apartment um, again in Brooklyn where I, near where I lived before. And I... You know, at the time I was selling uh, a Spanish portfolio that was already imported by somebody else. I was going to do the local distribution with the idea of eventually being able to create enough revenue to be able to go buy a couple of pallets from France on my own. Right. So the wine was in the States already imported. You were distributing it. Right. That's how it started. Right. Your next step and dream was to get across, you know, the pond and start, you know, searching for wine. Start my own French portfolio. I was always like most uh, attracted to French wine, Um, you know, just because that's the way the textbooks are written. You know, they all start with Bordeaux and then Burgundy and then Champagne, whatever. Um, And then they go to all the other countries and because like there's just like an esteem for it. And because it's just kind of like, I don't know, it romanced me. Maybe I like France. Maybe I like, you know the language and everything. Um, And so I always had a thing for for French wine. And so, yeah, my goal was to, you know, distribute this other portfolio to be able to create enough revenue to go start importing some French wine. And so I I achieved um, that. You know, I'm kind of jumping ahead because I want to talk about natural wine as a topic too. But when you had that desire, you know, to focus on French wines, and France has been, you know, the beginnings in the center of natural wines. Was that on the radar? Was that on your mind then or that kind of came after? So it was on my mind, but I didn't know. You know, I wasn't able to articulate it. Um, you know, I, the, the terminology natural wine did exist, but it was like, you know, not very common. Um, right. Especially, you know, having spent, you know, three years in Utah and then a year in San Francisco before that. So it had been a while before I was in New York where like natural wine in America had really started. Um, but, you know, I read the Kermit Lynch book and I, all of the, all of the wines that I was most attracted to were the small production wines, um, right. you know, the handmade style wines. You, you know, you I, a, I was, yeah. I was, I already had a strong like anti Parker taste in my mouth. Um, that's, you know, that's not hard. we're also sure, but now like nobody even gives a shit. Like, you know, nobody even knows who Robert Parker is anymore. I know. Um, it's so you know, funny. then it was like this fight of, small production versus like this uniformity of style that was getting like shaped based on like the point he, he shaped nap and he shaped he shaped nap and he shaped bordeaux i mean and then and then you know and then tuscany and then piedmont and then everywhere you know tried to make wines that were that were point based and you know i tasted with robert barker and one of his spanish tasters one time and you know i saw the process that they did and i you know i i really thought it was a bad process. And so I was really like soured against, um, against that. And so, you know, my, my sentiment was like this artisanal, smaller production thing. I didn't have the vocabulary of natural wine yet. And I also don't think that I, I had, 
come down on the partisan side of organic viticulture. You know, I think I was like, you know, these guys know what they're doing. Like they're trying to do their best, but you know, there were, there were times in my travels to Europe that, that, uh, solidified that perspective. You know, I think one of them was a time I saw a vineyard in France and there was, a, or I'm sorry, in Spain. And there was a guy, you know, walking by a machine and had a, a hazmat suit on, you know, and I think, boy, if you, if you got to wear a hazmat suit to, <laughs> That's to, to treat the grapes, like maybe, uh, we shouldn't be drinking that wine. And you just see vineyards that are, you know, you go to one organic vineyard in a region where there's a lot of uh, chemical, which is basically everywhere. And they'll just walk you in the vineyard and they'll say, look, here's the one with the chemicals. The ground is, you know, hard like a tennis court. And you go into this other one and it's full of life and the ground is soft and there's, you know, there's, there's weeds and diversity and bugs. And, you know, one looks like this healthy, vibrant ecosystem and one looks like this like really dead environment. And so for me, it was just like, you know, I did not like open the company with the intention of opening a natural wine company, but um, just like every sentiment, every, you know, thing that you saw made you or made me go to one side to, rather than the other. Right. So, you know, so fairly and squarely, you know, it shouldn't be any way but that way. You know, taking care of the earth and creating a permaculture around the vineyards, you know, and all of that, you know, versus like you said, just padded down soil treated with chemicals. Right? right. And, you know, the more that we know about these chemicals, the more that we know that they have these like hugely long half-life, you know, the, the, the systemic chemicals and that they, they don't disappear just because they're out of, you know, sight. They slowly work their way through the soil and into the water system and, you know, do damage everywhere on the way to the ocean where they sit for 50 million years. So, you know, we create these chemicals and they, they, they get injected to the earth and, um, and they're there for, you know, basically ever. Um, certainly way, way past our lifetimes. So it's just like an unsustainable way to farm. And so, you know, that seemed like an obvious thing. So tell me, so you become, you go into business as a wine importer. Just tell everyone briefly what the function of a wine importer distributor is. Because, you know, people open a bottle, drink a glass of wine. They have no idea, you know, they know it came from grapes in a vineyard, but from there to glass, just what, what, what's the function of a wine porter, imported distributor? It's kind of, it's a big conversation because they, you know, they all function in sort of different ways. Um, How do you, know, you do it? The, well, the, so, so the, the government is set up with some regulations around wine more or in alcohol more so they are, than they are in like other goods that are being imported. Um, so you have to deal with the FDA and you have to deal with the like legal structures of being like an importer or a distributor and selling across straight state lines and all this stuff. So the way that you get your wine in some place can be like sort of a um, somewhat complex trip through the supply chain. Um, but, you know, I think what an importer is by like the way that we think of importers right now is somebody who has a company and they go to whatever country um, to find wine. They develop a relationship with a winery um, and they buy a certain amount of wine. They put it on a boat, bring it back, put it in a warehouse, and then they go out on the street and make relationships with retailers and restaurants uh, to sell them, you know, bottle by bottle, case by case or whatever. Um, and it's not a, it's not on a federal level, right? You have to do it state by state. 
true there's a lot of complexities to it so you're you know you're allowed to do importation and distribution in certain states in certain states you know you're only allowed to be a distributor or an importer so you know we do uh, a lot of different functions now you know I'm a partner in a California distribution company that we that do the actual distribution in New York um, you know we we basically self-distribute um, so but we in talk all, about in Cal- all the other states, we sell to a distributor, right? An independent company that might be a two-person company or one-person company in a small state, right? Who right. buys from a couple of us different importers and then resells it to the restaurants and retailers in their area, or it might be a larger one, you know, maybe a twenty or thirty-person company where they're, you know, doing the same thing in their state, but you know, in a market that's larger and more capable of handling a distributor of larger size. So there's like a million different sizes and styles of distributors right. out there, and they all based their work on how the states work. So some states even are monopoly states, Pennsylvania, Utah, where the government right. actually does the buying and right. selling. Right, their so state stores. The state so you you talked about uh, California. Your footprint now in the U.S. is multiple states? Yeah, we sell in 40 states, I think. Wow. Um, so we're in most of them. But, you know, like that's, you know, that sounds like a big number since... You know, it could be only fifty of them. Forty is like really big, right? It might be a small state that's like not actually buying that much because. um, But it's it's amazing. You know, it's 2020, and natural wine is everywhere. And you know, the interest for natural wine is really everywhere in places that you would never expect. Um, right. You know, of course, when we started importing our first natural wines in 2009, 2010, um, you know, nobody. Uh, it was hard to find accounts in New York City that wanted it, let alone, um, you know, in Oklahoma or whatever. And now we get we get calls from distributors in, you know, all the states, basically. Isn't that um, crazy? It was only 10 years ago. Yeah, it is really crazy that it's happened. I mean, if you years. think about, you know, I mean, you've been at it long enough and it seems like forever, but it was only 10 years ago. What? Um, so you bring most... Uh, of the 140, 50 plus wineries you deal with, the biggest chunk of those are in France? Yeah, but definitely. Um, definitely the largest like number of actual wineries. Uh, we have a couple, we have some large wineries in, in uh, Austria or one in particular. Um, you know, so Who's if we can break it down by sales or something, it might be a little different. Yeah. What, um, what are like newer growth areas where you feel good wines are coming out that are getting good response? There are so many. Um, you know, I think Alsace is probably the most like, underrated and just like really interesting right now, like in terms of like what's happened in the last three to four years um, in a region. Um, you know, I think Alsace has like this incredible complexity of terroirs. They have an incredible complexity of grape varieties. Um, you know, there's just like every type of, you know, variation of thing that you can do. And I think the old way was they would just bottle like, you know, all these single vineyard Grand Cru wines or whatever. And those are like barely distinguishable from each other unless you have like an incredible palate and you can really do that. Um, but if you're going to be a little bit more fun and you're going to start to do macerations and you're going to start to do pet nats and you're going to start to do, you know, uh, blends of fruits and grapes and all sorts of stuff. And you're, you know, you're going to use like the, the creative set of what natural wine offers today, uh, the palette of, of ingredients 
that's available in Alsace is incredible. Like it's, it's so, it's so diverse and amazing. And um, it's a and good value. They're not expensive wines generally, right? Not at all. They're so, yeah. they're, it's such a good value. Um, you yeah. know, there's not really a lot of cheap wine in Alsace, I'll say, but right. there's not like any really expensive yeah, wine I, I didn't either. Mean so cheap. it like hits that mid range really well. Quality um, to value. Yeah. Yeah. Where else? Um, you know, there's always cool little things happening in the Loire. Um, you know, we just opened a sake portfolio. I'm super excited about a lot of these, like, why, um, like, why, why pivot a little to sake? I mean, what drew your attention for that? Um, well, uh, to, to be frank, there's like an export company, um, that, that sells them around Europe and I've been, you know, I go to Europe all the time um, and I eat and drink in the restaurants and they have these incredible sakes that we don't have in America and um, I started to learn about them and there's this one uh, in, per- in particular called Terrada Honke who, you know, Can you spell that for me? Rice, T-R-A-D-A space right. H-O-N-K-E Okay and, you know, makes his own koji and grows his own rice and, you know, ferments everything without yeast and uh, has like this relationship with his his staff that's really special. Um, right. We went there and learned a lot about how it all. So, so it's, it it's, so it's like a whole other podcast. Um, yeah. It's a natural sake per se. Yes, very much so. And it like it, it is it goes to the same philosophy that natural wine, I think, is really based on, which is that um, there was a way to make wine before uh, all the chemicals got invented. You know, all, all of those chemicals in the vineyard were invented in the 40s and, you know, were proliferated in like the 50s, 60s, 70s. And the reason the fermentation stopped is because yeast complexes uh, stopped growing in the vineyards because they were full of chemicals and you needed something to get the fermentations going properly. And, you know, there wasn't the right nutrition in the grapes. You need to, you know, add enzymes and, um, you know, one, one technology cutting corner, you know, led to the need for a new technology. And that happened over and over to the point that wine became like far from the simple product of, you know, grapes crushed in a fat. And so the, the, what Tarada Honke is doing is very much going back to what uh, sake was made like, you know, 60, 70 years ago. And, you know, when we think about natural wine and conventional wine and how like somehow they're like this, like really, you know, two sides of the political spectrum, you know, it wasn't very long ago that all wines were natural wine because that was the only way to make wine. Um, you know, we're talking like in, into the middle of the 20th century. It's not like a super long time ago. So, um, you know, so the, 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 they were congruent to me uh, in that way. And to me, that's like part of like the real essence of natural wine. Um, I know that we said we would like try to define it at some point, but you know, yeah. I think that, I think that is like a, well, a we'll fundamental thing in it that is really important. One last question about the business. Um, you know, I, I was going to ask you, how do you select the wineries? Obviously one criteria is, you know, practices, you know, organic farming, which we discussed a little and we'll discuss more. Um, you know, what else? Is everything spoken for? Are there still people out there? Uh, are people looking for representation? You know, I know you travel, not lately, but, you know, h- how do you select a winery? I'm sure there's people you turn down and people that you'd like that you can't get and people that you come across. How's that process work? Um, 
I mean, it, it, it's, it, it happens through like, just like tons and tons of travel or I don't know, it happened for me through tons and tons of travel and uh, really spending, you know, for me, really spending the time to, you know, go visit people even if you don't work with them, just to taste, just to talk, going to lots of trade shows, spending the time being diligent at Makes them, sense. tasting with people, you know, having full conversations with them, going to the dinner parties, becoming friends with everybody, you know, if a winery that you really like um, leaves their importer, you want to be the first one in their mind. You know, it's like nice to be their friends. It's, and, it's and you know, it's also it's, it's also nice to it's networking, but it's also nice yeah. to go out and drink wine with natural winemakers yeah. and talk talk to them about wine. I love sitting around barrels, tasting wine, talking about a winery's production. I find it to be like one of the most engaging and interesting conversations that you can have because it like talks about somebody's like the little solutions that they come up with through artisanship. You know, when, you, when you're like restricted to not using um, chemicals that make your job easier, you have to become very creative and you have to, yeah. you know, but- use all of your craft and your hands and your mind and everything to do it. And talking about that is just, a very joyful experience to me. So I, I like doing it even if they're like, we don't have like a, a specific business interest in it. Um, that, that, I like being it makes a lot of culture. sense. You never know what's going to happen, you know? Right. right. And so to answer the question that you asked earlier, which was, you know, are there new wineries? Like, is everything taken? Um, you know, when I started some very prominent wine importers told me that, you know, you're stupid for doing this. Like all the good wineries are taken. Like there's no wine out there. And, you know, that was sort of true. Uh, they were, they weren't wrong about that. And like, right. that's the truth now, um, too. like all the really great wineries are definitely taken. Um, but there's new wineries all the time. Um, wineries leave importers all the time. Um, you know, the, the new generation basically like, in Europe, most of the people who own a winery are going to retire around like normal retirement age, um, right. maybe a little bit later in the 60s or whatever. And their children take over the wineries and their children in their 20s and their 30s or whatever. And they see the market and they see that there's demand for natural wine and they convert their parents' wineries Different into natural wineries. Yeah. Um, or good, a young person is going to start their own winery from scratch. You know, most of these people that are going to start like a little four hectare winery from scratch is going to want to work organically and it's going to want to do, you know, uh, put really nice labels on it and uh, make pretty natural wines. It's just like what it's just like a nicer environment. Um, So, you know, there might not be a lot of great wineries out there that are not imported right now, but, you know, somebody's going to get the next one and. Seems to be keep people keep plugging away, you know, yeah. I, I mean, you know, you got a good head start, but you know, there's, you know, there's guys out there, smaller guys, you know, that are grabbing, you know, whatever they can. Um, and that's okay. All right. I want to talk to you about natural wine. Um, I can't think of anybody better than you to, you know, get into this discussion. Um, at the end of this discussion, you know, when we're, kind of got through it. I want you to give me your definition of natural wine. You may have done it during the course of the discussion, but there was a recent article in Punch um, where you were prominently featured discussing the topic of natural wine and how it's defined. And now there's a certification by an organization in France called Syndicat de Defense de Vin Naturale. Um, are you familiar with these certifications? I am, yes. Does 
does it make sense to have certification and are these guys on the right track? I mean, you, you would have a good feel and know enough by now. What's your take on that? Uh, I definitely think that it's a good idea. And these guys are the right people. Um, you know, one of them is actually a winery. You know, the, the, the guy who, like, heads it up um, is a winery that I've imported for 10 years. Um, and he is a tiny little winery, um, you know, and they make everything completely without sulfur and are like they they have no like real commercial gain to this except for the fact that they're trying to um i think you know have a definition and uh have something reliable for the consumer you know there's been a bunch of attempts over the years to have uh like a natural wine certification and there's been different bodies, the AVN, the Association du Vin Naturel in France uh, before that. And there was like a lot of like split factions on it because, um, you know, the definition of natural wine keeps changing. Um, You know, at first it was this thing of the like Gang of Five and Jules Chauvet and Marcel Apierre and, 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 and... and all those guys in Beaujolais and that was like um, and that first generation of it and it has evolved a hundred times since then and there's been all these little like you know sub movements and small movements and and, you know some people define it as zero zero nothing added nothing taken away and then a lot that would like that would preclude the founders of the movement in fact uh, because you know all the founders of the movement pretty much uh, add a little bit of sulfur to at least a portion of their wines so zero zero i just want everyone to understand uh explain to them is the addition of a little sulfur um, is the addition of a little sulfur or or, i'm sorry zero zero is no no sulfur. sulfur And I think like the second zero refers to, so I think the zero zero refers to nothing added, nothing taken away. Right. Um, but, but some, some natural legit guys do a little sulfur, you know, to protect the wines, right? Well, look, it depends on how, it depends on how you define natural for you. You know what I mean? Like if you define natural as nothing added, um, then, then no, the, the, the original guys don't fit in that box anymore. If so, you consider natural wine, you know, that like there's a limit in your mind of how much sulfur can be added. And these guys are probably clearly under that and they're back in the club. Um, so, but that was, the, that's the thing about this, 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 uh, there's two certifications, right? right there's, there's no two. sulfur there's, and a little sulfur. Exactly. And that's, that makes sense. I mean, cause yeah. you're not a proponent of no sulfur, never. It's sort of a necessary evil or ingredient at some point right? Uh, look i am a proponent of the winemaker being their own special individual you know right. like what what That's makes natural wine thing. fun is that like each winemaker what makes it special and i think different from the conventional world in a lot of ways is like the conventional world everybody's trying to sort of arrive at the same thing which is like this like let's say let's take bordeaux for example is this like you know bigger richer darker longer more complex red wine and in natural wine everybody's just trying to be like you know their own special you know flower you know they're trying to like be the they're trying to be expressive and artistic and they're trying to you know make different wines and take chances and make strange things and nice things and if it's your like 
feeling that sulfur, you know, really affects the soul of wine and like you don't think you're going to get true expression that way, then, you know, that's your definition of natural wine. If you think that you're trying to make something that's like a little bit more precise, that's like a little bit more stable, you know, that you're you're worried about the transport, you're worried about all sorts of things, like I'm not going to begrudge you for putting a little bit of sulfur in your wine. Um, you know, both of those like perspectives I think are perfectly valid. You know, the 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 really important thing for me is the vineyard work that you do um, and, you know, and that you're like honest and communicative about what you do. So uh, to that point, um, I guess there's two questions here. Um, are people going to buy into it? Are the right people going to buy into it? You know, guys like you, you know, Isabelle Lejeune, and whoever's important out there. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, okay, so you've laid down these, you know, guidelines. How do you check and monitor to these, you know, uh, certifications? And, you know, if people are kind of busting the rules, how do you enforce them? I mean, aren't those real problems? Not really. I, I kind of think that this is like a, I kind of think that this is like a mail-in ballot <laughs> issue. Um, you know, the, the organic or biodynamic certification, right? Like if you're, we're talking about Europe, which is where this, this, this thing exists at this point, um, or EcoCert or, or Demeter, if you're biodynamic or like one of the other like governing bodies. And um, they come to your, to your site and they take soil samples, leaf samples multiple times a year. Um, it's not like a huge thing, but they come and do it and they test it. And, you know, if you're spraying chemicals, like they'll, they'll find traces. Um, and you know, so like, there's this whole idea that like a lot of people are lying about the farming that they do. You know, I think if you're certified, like it's, it's a little bit hard to lie. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can like figure it out, but like, it seems like more effort than it would be worth. And then, you know, with regards to the other part with the sulfur, you know, all you need is a, is a lab analysis and to, to be part of the one where there's no sulfur added, I, I'm pretty sure you have to submit a lab analysis. Um, and you can see how much sulfur is in the wine. Um, so is there, it's not, a it's not like it's super easy to fake all that. And like, if right. you were trying to fake all that, like sounds you like don't it do might it be more work than it. it would be just right. to do it. Right. Um, do you have to, uh, I think you would agree with me that some wineries have, you know, impeccable practices, but they're not certified either because they don't want to be, or there's a cost for this particular thing. Is there going to be a cost for a winery to be part of it? Uh, you know, I, I am not like a spokesman for this thing. I don't necessarily know every detail. I believe there yeah, is a cost for it. Does, I, was I, just I would also, I would also call bullshit a little bit on that other thing that you said though, that a lot of people, uh, you know, will work impeccably, but do not want to spend the money on the, uh, on the certification. Um, that's not really a true, I hear that all the time, but you know, there's a, there's an EU subsidy that more than covers the expense of getting certified. Um, so the bullshit you're calling is it's bullshit that people don't go the extra step because it's available to them to be certified if they're practicing. Is yes. that what you're saying? Okay. Yes. So I'm happy that you brought that point up because I'm not defending anybody. Um, sure. But I hear that all the time, you know, and, yeah, I've heard no, that, and I've heard that over the years and I used and to hear that too, more than I hear it now. I, and I just don't really buy it. Like I just, it's just not a really believable story to me. Um, I, like I just I'm know what it costs. It I think, 
I think for a, a 12 hectare winery, which is like, you know, making quite a lot of wine, the, the annual cost is like 1500 euros to have the government come and do the checks. And they, it's not very much compared to like the revenue that you're doing on a 12 hectare winery. And, yeah. um, and, and there's a subsidy that covers it because, you know, they're trying to push people to yeah. do more organics in, in Europe. So, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm glad you brought if, that if, up. The, the, talk about the paperwork, like, I'm sorry, it's just not that much. Um, and the, the, what is a lot of work and what is really expensive is working organically. Right. Like, I think that's the thing that like the day to day practice, the day to day practice, because there's a lot more individual labor that has to go into it. So that costs money. Um, you know, you have to go through the wine through the vines many, many more times a year to spray copper sulfate or whatever you're doing instead of fungicide. Um, so there, you know, you're hand tilling around vines, you're, you're hand pruning. Most likely it's not really related to organics, but, you know, they often go hand in hand. And so there is like this big commitment of time and money that you're putting into working organically. So then to not do like a few hours a year of paperwork is like also just, you know, I don't know, everybody has their own individual experience, but, um, I, I agree. you know, I, I think maybe if that. you're like really politically driven and you just hate the government, then maybe you're not going to do it. Fair enough. Um, Zev, we have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want you to give me your definition of natural wine, and then I want to talk about the working contract and a few other things. We're talking to Zev Rovine from Zev Rovine Selections. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, Food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Zev Rovine. Zev is the proprietor of Zev Rovine Selections. He imports wines from many countries and many wineries um, with a slant towards uh, natural wines. Um, Zev, we just talked about you know, natural wine and trying to define the term and trying to get some kind of certification. I'm sure people ask you from time to time, because it's a very polarizing subject and question, you know, how do you define 
natural wine. You have to have a definition in your mind because you have to apply that against, you know, who you want to bring in. So what would you say to that? I think like the, the like, you know, elevator pitch answer is that it's a wine made from organic or biodynamically grown grapes that is fermented, aged and bottled uh, with no additives with the exception of sulfur and the sulfur levels being somewhere under, you know, right. 40 to 50 milligrams per, per liter added. Um, that's like the like real easy way to say it. Um, you know, if I find a wine that checks off all those boxes, like it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to buy it. Um, you know, right. I think that there is, it could like, suck, right? It could suck. Um, yeah. Or the people could be assholes or, you know, right. any number, any number of reasons um, that, you know, where you have another wine in your portfolio that's like it or whatever. But yeah, I mean, um, it, you, for me, the definition of natural wine also goes further than those, those checkpoints. Um, like for my own aesthetic version of natural wine, you know, it also includes, um, you know, some level of artisanship, some, you know, we, we generally work with smaller wineries. We, we do have a couple of larger ones now. Um, but, you know, I think that even they will look at their wines and say, like, these are like really nice organic wines and these are natural wines, um, right. you know, ones that they make with more care and more touch and um, in kind of more special ways and with even less additive. I think um, that I... I think another thing you can add to that, and it's a good segue into what I want to talk to you about, you know, when you talk about natural wines, there's this respect for the land and, you know, the ingredients, which is, you know, minimal. Um, but I think there's also a respect for the people that are involved in making those wines and how you treat them. And you've been working on this thing called the working contract. And I'm pretty sure you were working on this even before this Valentina Pasqualacqua incident. Um, uh, she's an Italian winemaker. You know, I told you I didn't want to get into it or, you know, make the show about it. But I just want you to, you know, from your lips just to explain to people, you know, what the Pasolacqua incident in Italy was. And then I really want to talk to you about the working contract. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, it, ethics are really a difficult thing because many times you are even doing your best to follow your ethics and taking like the financial aspects of decision-making aside and putting ethics first and you still don't know whether or not you're doing the right thing. Um, you know, anything that I'm going to say about that, like, you know, starts with that, you know, it, it is not easy to, uh, be a judge. It is not easy to, uh, you know, one, one's decisions in these realms has really big effects, um, on wineries, on, you know, um, their staff on the land on all that kind of stuff. So any like decisions like the, you know, the one that happened with Valentina uh, is one that I took, you know, with a huge amount of responsibility and one that, you know, time will tell um, really, you know, I really think that Valentina personally uh, has paid all of her 
workers properly. Um, I, but I go back that- for a second. Her dad is a fruit, whatever wholesale. Yeah, her, her dad. Her dad is um, has a, a, a marble quarry and um, also makes uh, vegetables and fruit in a like conventional style way. Um, and there are labor camps basically in Puglia and in some other parts of Italy where they're basically holding, um, where something approximate to the mafia is holding workers in like a village and they will truck them to different, uh, work sites and presumably her father and and he's not been convicted of it, but he's been charged with it. Um, has used those workers in the past in his in his business. And so, you know, there is like a clear separation between her business and his business. Um, I don't believe that she ever did that for her winery. Um, I think that she's had, you know, uh, people come and legally audit and make that statement in a clear way. Um, but for me, there was like a... There was a connection to it all that I but was so every, uncomfortable wait, with. Not and to so, interrupt, but so everyone knows the reason we're talking about this is Valentina is someone that was in or is in your portfolio, was in your portfolio. You know, beyond being what it was, it's something that's connected to you. Um, so go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it happened... Um, you know, I looked at the situation and I thought that I was never going to be able to truly find, you know, all of the truth of it because how big affair that includes, you know, uh, generational wealth in this area. That's got like a long history of, uh, labor rights abuses and mafia and, you know, and Italian government and the church and you know like this is like this super big complex situation and um, it was one that I you know wanted to distance myself from because I just it wasn't it wasn't worth you know the potentiality of um, financially supporting that type of labor work Uh, you know the, the risk of that of that being true were not worth the benefit to me. So right. the the doubt was enough for me to, you know, to step Sever. away from importing. Okay. Okay. Um, so getting back to the working contract, um, you know, the working contract involves people, values, ethics, and all that. Tell me what your working contract is, how it came about. Why now? Um, I mean, it's something that like I've, I've considered for a long time, like you mentioned. Um, but I, I do think that part of it is the polarity of our politics. And I think, um, part of it has been that one of the things that's like really come out and not just over the Trump administration, but like, this is like over, I don't know, the last 10, 15 years where these far right groups in Europe, and we see them all the time, you know, the Front National in France, and just like the outward, uh, you know, support of, of a political party that is like really bordering on, you know, a lot of fascist ideas. And that is not, that is anti-immigration, that is, is you know, not really like uh, aligned with my politics. And we have this incredible power in that, you know, 
we spend a lot of money on wine. Um, you know, we buy wine for large groups of people basically. So, you know, it's not like we're, so the, the money passes through us. Um, and I didn't want to, I don't want to vote with those dollars to people who are voting for political parties that don't align with my ethics. Um, you know, that clearly don't, um, the really far right ones. Um, you know, there's other issues in our industry that are rampant forever. Um, a lot of sexism issues. Uh, it's, it's a male dominated industry. Um, white male so dominated that I was going to get to that next. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. Sorry. But, you know, like just like the, the number of stories that I've heard of people getting groped and bought, you know, in wine situations and even very much in the natural wine world, you know, it happens in our world too. We're not better than the conventional wine world in that regard. Um, you know, so we, we don't want to work with people who make, you know, who, who assault people, who make people feel uncomfortable, who say things that make people feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, we want to work with people who uh, have an inclusive view uh, of who we want in our world. And then, and then, yes, it's, you know, wine is a colonialist movement and it is a very white one. Um, and we don't want to be involved with people who are not making, you know, especially in our country, black people not feel comfortable, people of color in general, um, in our environment. I mean, we want to uh, do a way better job than we have at uh, being an inclusive environment because, you know, the, the natural wine world is not better than the conventional wine world on this. You go to the big trade shows all over the place, it's just white people all over the place. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories from people of color in natural wine places where they aren't made to really feel comfortable and they, in fact, prefer to be in conventional wine spaces um, because they get treated with more respect. And, you know, that's such a sad, heartbreaking thing because I think the way that, like, we think of ourselves in natural wine is as progressives and liberals and inclusive. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that, um, you know, I hate to do this, but to use a golf analogy, if the ball, the ball never lies, right? It does what your thing did. <laughs> um, when you look at the people who are in our spaces, they're overwhelmingly white there's something, ha something's happening there. You know what I mean? That this yeah. is not a welcome place. So, um, you know, so tell me, tell we have me to do everything to address those issues. The, the other part of the working contract, by the way, sorry to cut you off. Um, no, I cut also you has off. to do with labor rights, produce, uh, labor rights issues. Um, there's a bunch of regions around the world, um, California, some Southern parts of Italy, Southern parts of Spain, um, where there is regular labor rights abuses in the, agricultural realm. And so part of our working contract is that, the, you know, uh, that everybody is paying everybody properly and giving proper insurance and, um, you know, hopefully paying above legal minimum wage. Um, it, 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 it makes sense the way your business is structured because the people you deal with are really farmer winemakers, not wine companies. Right. Right. We're dealing with the people who are paying the, the salaries themselves. Right? right. So they know what's going on. Right. Um, and they make the choices about what's going on. And, you know, to be in this idea of natural wine where we think that we're selling a better product, which we do. I mean, I do think that natural wine is a better product than conventional wine. Um, you know, it's not full of chemicals. It is made by like the ideas that terroir, like, you know, defined um, 
initially uh, in a way that I think conventional wine doesn't. But, you know, all that doesn't matter at all if we're abusing our labor. So it's like, you know, we, you, they're, they're completely, you know, all that is moot, stupid shit. I mean, it's just like, it's aesthetic and preference and style and it means nothing at all if we're out abusing people. So I, um, I agree. Um, two things. And then I want to try to get to our wine list. Two things. Is this something you're creating for your company or you feel that that for sure, but beyond, you know, you could bring it to, you know, restaurants, other companies. And why wasn't this done sooner? I mean, you and I know this crap's been going on for years and years. Um, well, I, I think that uh, first, you know, I'm doing it for my company um, internally. We're writing a version of it for all of my staff and myself and everybody to sign and have a standard of our own current conduct. Um, and then we're adapting that for the conduct that we expect of our, our winery partners. Um, you know, let's also not forget that, like, there's all sorts of uh, abuses that happen in restaurants and restaurant culture here in America. I mean, like, you know, that I think that there should be also a standard that, you know, places are signing that think of themselves as more ethical, that they're paying their dishwashers and bussers and runners and everybody that, you know, might not normally uh, might be immigrant labor that's not getting, you know, the normal protections by the government that they're treating those people well, even if they're paying them under the table. So, you know, I think there's like, all of us need to like reflect and all of us need to take a look at what we're doing. So to answer the question about like, whether or not like I offer this contract for anybody else to use, I would love to, like we have no problem with anybody else, like just absolutely putting their better okay, head on the top great. of it and using it as well. You know, they have to like do that though. Right. Like not we we were we opened at a time where, you know, we have only organic producers now where we're able to sign that contract in our uh, our work. Some other, you know, importers have a mix of both. It's not actually going to be easy for everybody to, right. to just use it. Right. And why not sooner? I mean, why did we need a pandemic and, you know, George Floyd to illuminate, you know, how effed up everything is? You know, I, I think that um, this is one of these things where uh, we like who think of ourselves as like little companies or like artisanal things um, think that things are implied and they're not right. Like in, in big corporations, you do have contracts like this. You know what I mean? Like you, yes. you, you sign a contract and, you know, a, a code of ethics that you're like supposed An to like, employee do won't be by. hired unless they sign it. Right. But we all just think in here in like little business world that like we have some sort of like oversight because we're somehow, you know, better people right. that this point. stuff is not going to happen. And so it, it does exist in our culture. It just doesn't exist in like little natural wine yet. And it's partly because, you know, you got it, you know, we're, we're writing it with, um, you know, with some labor rights lawyers and we're writing it with um, some people who you're, done you're being inclusive in who really you're consulting good work in, yeah, in uh, equity and those types of things. People are really experienced and really know what they're doing. You know, I'm not just sitting here writing a, a fucking constitution type of thing. Like it's not my, I'm not educated enough in the realm of equity to write a, a 
portion of like that. I'm not qualified to write the, you know, the portion on sexism and how it affects our industry, but they're, you know, so we're outsourcing all that work to the people who we really think are, uh, you know, qualified to do it and their names will be on it. And, you know, it'll be like an evolving document as time goes on. But, well, I want to check back with you at some point, you know, and see, you know, how far and how well, how well that has gone. Um, I want to, not to brush that aside, but I want to move on because we have about five minutes left, Zev. Um, I want to get your take on, you know, what you're drinking and thinking now. I want you to answer our wine list. It's five questions. I ask all my guests the same five questions. Don't dwell on it. Be spontaneous. Um, and let's try to move quickly. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What are you trying? What's in your fridge? What have the seasonal changes brought? New producers, new areas. What are you drinking now? You know, I hate to promote our portfolio, but I've been drinking a lot of sake this year, and it has okay. been an absolute revelation. Um, the, the sake without, you know, alcohol added to it, without filtration, that are like high or low polished, high rice proportions to them are just amazing tasting things that go with so well, much different food. Tell people something, because sake is, you know, this artisanally made thing, but I guess during the World War or whatever, I, to either increase volume or production, they added alcohol, and that became a practice and obviously your guy is not doing that right our guy is not doing that and then the other thing that he's doing that i think is really distinctive is you know it, it's very humid in japan and so growing rice without chemicals you lose a really big portion of your crop and so you kind of can't financially do it unless you uh lower the polish on the rice so the you know it's kind of like perceived right now uh in like conventional sake that the more you polish it and the kind of less ricey it tastes that the finer it is and this is like throwing that idea out and saying we want it to be ricey we want to like you know we want to highlight the rice and so you have the double benefit of being able to have it fit into your you know balance sheet but then also you are getting like these like really deep rice flavors which to me are like really compelling and amazing um, like you said, that's, that's another show. All right. Yeah. You got to be quick on these. Okay. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you eat every night, every month, you know, but is there something that it's the silliest question on the list, but no, no, no. Um, you know, I really love, um, look, my favorite wine is lighter style red wine. And so I love Burgundy and I love Beaujolais and I love, uh, Jura type things and I, I, they really evoke like mushroomy flavors and I love mushrooms and so I love okay. like mushroom style dishes with light red wines that's a good one um, you should be able to answer this one you know easily your favorite wine restaurant and or bar people that have the selection the knowledge the vibe the environment i mean i guess let's stay with new york brooklyn you know this area is there any place okay, that i absolutely out? cannot answer that question actually because it would um, be you would exclude people <laughs> yeah of course i have so many clients and friends and there's so many very good ones and so i can make a big list but I so will wait, 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 instead... wait, 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 wise guy, calm down. I'm not going to put you in the spot. And I always know that's the answer. And I didn't get a chance to say it. Would you say that not in attempting to answer that question, 
but categorically we're talking about like well-known wine bars you know like 10 bells in june and blah 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 not that those are them but but you lean more towards places that service those kind of wine lists we definitely, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, those are like the okay. natural wine places. So you know, we'll leave it at that. So, yeah, we'll and, keep it in natural wine. I could answer, Andy, though. I, go ahead. Let's say, let's say Vervolet in Paris is one of the places that I Spell find it for me. like an incredible place. Spell you say it. Estella for you? Estella, it's called? Oh, no, no. Did you say Stellar? No, no, no. Spell the place in France because I oh, didn't hear I'm it. Oh, I'm sorry. Spell it. Ver, yeah. V-E-R-R-E, Vole, V-O-L-E. Oh, okay. All right. So that's, so you did answer the question without getting in trouble. All right. So we'll move off of that. We have two more questions, then we got to wrap up. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? Just so you know, when I put you know, we've been doing this podcast four years now. When I put that question in, I was trying to evoke out of people, what's the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? It, we so far moved from that question. What's the wine that had the impact on you? That was, you know, uh, uh, a life-changing thing or an awareness thing for you. Is there an important wine to super, you? Super easy for me. Um, sure. It was Cornelissen. Uh, it was it was Mungibel Bianco uh, number uh, number four. Um, and I had never had a macerated wine. I had never had a wine that like had all those characteristics. It had all those flavors to it. And it was like just absolutely nothing I had ever had before in my life. When, um, what year was that about? That was in maybe 2008. Okay. So not that long ago. That's exactly the answer I'm looking for. That's an important wine to you. Last question. And nobody better than you can answer this. I want you to recommend the best wine around 15, 20 bucks. I want you to recommend a red. I want you to recommend a white. It could be within your portfolio outside. It could be from anywhere. The setup is my kids are in their 20s. They can't show up at a dinner or bring a gift with a crappy supermarket wine. They don't have the jack to spend, you know, $40, $50. So how are they wowing people? 15, 20, 22 bucks. You can go category like Muscadet is a great value. Give me a good red suggestion and a good white suggestion. Yeah, sure. I will. Uh, let's see. I will try to do something that is definitely not in our portfolio. Um, you know, I'm just going to do a little quick. It's tough to do it from France right now because everything from France has a 25% tariff on it because yeah. of Trump's stupid tax with the Airbus and thing. Um, so that makes it a little bit difficult. But I was thinking, like you know, like Puzelat and Moss and all those kind of like founding guys from the Loire Valley that make yeah. like amazing light red, you know, light red wines and uh, sort of like more dense white wines that are that are all in that all right. price range. All right. So those are good ones. Wait. So Puzelat for white. Let's go. Um, all right, let's do, uh, I guess this has to be like fairly easy to find that that makes it. Well, uh, that's the other thing. Funny. Yeah. Um, you know, Hervé Vilmade makes amazing core Chevrony that I think is, is spell, really good. Spell his last name for me because I post everything. Okay, V-I-L-L-E-M-A-D-E, Vilmade. Okay. Um, right. And then... Let's say what is a nice, fun, inexpensive, good red wine. Um, oh man, it's so hard. There's so many. 
You know, I love Christian Vanier, V-E-N-I-E-R. I know I'm saying really centralized in one part of the Loire, but his red wines are amazing. So for, Maybe that's good enough. Hard. Yeah, that's. I just <laughs> wanted a, a couple because, um, like I said, I post the list and, you know, everyone is curious what the guests are drinking. And this is your business. And you sort of got out of your own realm, which was kind of cool. Um, Zev, we got to wrap up. Like I told you, an hour would go by pretty quickly. We actually ran late. My engineer is going to kill me. I just got to do a quick wrap up and uh, we're going to say goodbye. I, I no, no, no. All me, not you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grape nation.com. That's Sam at the grape nation.com. Subscribe to our podcast um, and subscribe to the grape nation. Um, Podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or now wherever you get your pods. You can follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. But on both, you can use the hashtag The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Zev's wine list with some interesting uh, recommendations on our social media sites. Zev, if people were very compelled by this uh, interview and want to know more about where, what you're doing, what do they do? to know more about Zev Rovine selections, whether they're in the business or where to find the wines or anything in between. I mean, certainly follow us on Instagram. You know, we post all our wines all the time. At um, Zev Rovine selections. At Zev Rovine selections. Z-E-V-R-O-V-I-N-E selections. Yeah. And then what, what was the other uh, thing? I don't know. You can send me an email if you wanted to know something specific. Zev at ZRSWines.com. Okay, Zeb, it's ERS Wines. That's very Janice review. All right, that's good enough. I want to thank our guest, Zev Rovine from Zev Rovine Selections. Uh, very interesting conversation, Zev. A lot of stuff going on. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.